Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Game Is About Glory. My name is Steph, and joining me are Gareth and Milo. Hello, chaps. Hello. Hello, Steph. This week, it is all about the football we finally got to play after the COVID break. And we'll be looking back at the match against Liverpool at the New Lane, managed by a man, this is Liverpool, who would most certainly have to managed the Scorpions back in his day. But in reality, Jurgen Klopp is one hell of a manager. And as we will discuss, a wonderful spokesperson when it comes to covid we all know how brilliant Antonio Conte is as a coach and leader. What a clash of the minds it proved to be. And we will be discussing it later. But before we go there, let's start with our usual intro question. Derek and Clive voice coming up. What's the worst holiday you've ever had? Milo. It would be, oh, it's going back about 20 odd years ago with a girlfriend to Greece. It's a good start. What are you talking about? Great. <laughs> she had a, a feeling fallout. Um, very early in the holiday and um, we had some kind of botched medical treatment without really understanding a word of what was going on then spent the rest of the holiday being very careful about what she ate and what side of the mouth she ate it on and obviously she didn't really enjoy the holiday and uh, then when we flew home we split up pretty much as soon as we got back so it was a kind of um, it was a pretty lousy end to (laughs) to a lousy holiday That is a lousy holiday, but was it the holiday that you learnt not to do emergency dental work on your girlfriends? <laughs> um, it wasn't. My, it wasn't my my emergency dental work, thankfully. <laughs> Very good. We were, it was important, I thought, to confirm that uh, as a fact here. But uh, Gareth, that's a. It started well. A girlfriend in Greece. I mean, it even flowed in an alliterative sense, but it it tumbled quickly. Can you uh, bottom that out, if you will, with an even worse holiday experience? Uh, No, I don't think I can. Um, I mean, I'm going to start, this is going to be the most privileged start to a sentence you've ever got. But one time when I was in Hawaii, there you go, can't really stop this, as a a teenager, um, I was properly in the Kevin and Perry mode teenager at the time as well. (laughs) The idea of being away with my parents and my younger sister for two weeks. It didn't matter where it was. It could have been Hawaii or it could have been South End on Sea. Um, and yeah, I was, I was a very, very self-conscious teenager as well. And I think at one point when my mum told me I ought to be eyeing up the local colour, um, that was the moment when I actually died. And I think I returned back to my hotel room for the rest of the day. Um, but other than that, Hawaii was fantastic. But through the through the um, optics of a through the prism of a seventeen year old, uh, not so much so. Uh, so a message to Gareth parents: all that money you spent on that wonderful trip to Hawaii, he'd have been just as happy in Hounslow. I'm happy for them to take me to Hawaii if they want. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy for them to take me to Hawaii now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So if Gareth's parents are listening, we'll we'll make up for his uh, indolence and uh, lack of appreciation. Uh, I, you know, I was struggling to think of a terrible holiday, not because I'm sure I've had them, but there's nothing that's really leapt out as being awful. I mean, I do remember going to Hailing Island uh, with a friend and hanging out at a holiday camp. That was that was not great. Uh, I remember that. That was pretty poor. Um, but I think probably the worst one was when we went fishing. Oh, I didn't. Uh, I was with my mum and dad and we were in the far north of Scotland and he was fishing and suddenly um, we're running towards the car and there's this guy yelling from th- from where we had once been fishing and we're driving off and I re- said to my parents, you've left the fishing rods behind and it was only later I realised that my dad had been fishing, poaching and that there was a very <laughs> angry uh, man chasing after us and that's why we left the rods behind and I was scratching my head mummy daddy why why don't we go back for fishing rods oh no it's fine well you know it's, a, it's like, no. 
that was pretty poor. And that was the same holiday that my dad, who was, a, you know, a unique individual, he pitched a tent on a cliff in Durness, which is the far north of Scotland. And I swear to God, in my memory, the, the tent flap faced towards the cliff edge and it was like only 10 feet away. And I said to my mum, I was like, mummy, if I want to go to the toilet, well, I I might walk off the cliff. So she had to tell my dad, you should probably pitch the tent another 30 feet back. So I suppose when I think about it, that was quite a bewildering and terrifying holiday. <laughs> oh, death. And uh, that was your um, episode of Holiday Therapy from the famous account about glory. <laughs> so, uh, yes. From the holidays that weren't uh, to the week that was, the Europa Conference League, which some idiot once called the Proletariat Champions League. Well, we're no longer slumming it with those dirty proles in the Conference League. (laughs) UEFA's highly respected control ethics and disciplinary (laughs) body decided on Monday that by not being able to play the game against Rennes on 9th of December, we forfeited the fixture and were therefore deemed to have lost the match by three goals to nil. I just want you to note again, we weren't able to play the game against Wren on the 9th of December. And what? It was the 19th or 20th of December that these brainiacs actually figured out that we were forfeiting the fixture? Marvellous work, chaps. Uh, That season's finished third in the group. And Vitesse progressed the playoffs at our expense. And all these other clubs can check their social media accounts. It's okay. We've buggered off. A Spurs spokesman said, with tears in his eyes, we are disappointed by the ruling of the UEFA appeals body and the refusal to allow more time for the match to be rescheduled. We have to accept this ruling, however, and our focus now turns to the competitions we remain in. Stiff upper lip in the face of extreme sadness, no doubt, chaps, right? I mean, what a what an emotional statement from the club about our exit from the conference league. I mean, I think exactly that. I think it, we should be um, badging this um, Spexit, Spurs exit from <laughs> Europe. And, Very uh, for the last few For the last few weeks, I've been begging us to get Spexit done. So uh, <laughs> what a great, what a great word. It's a new part of our vocabulary. Spexit. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. Yes. I mean, I, th- I think the decision, the decision just came down to um, having uh, more than 13 players uh, available when we cancelled the tie when we pulled out the tie so i mean it was in the rules the, you know the rules accounted this were special rules that were in place for for um covid so it's unfortunate but that was always going to be the criteria that they judged it on so i think it's been cut and dry for some time yeah i, I think we've discussed the sporting integrity and the moment that vtes kicked off their game against mura that evening when we didn't I, th- I think that was the end of the matter. It would have been grossly unfair on Vitesse had we then had the opportunity to play afterwards. And as it turned out, we knew that we just needed to go and win the game by a goal to go through. It really, really wouldn't have been fair. So on for that matter alone, I think that was it was definitely the right decision. And look, there's no room for manoeuvring the fixture schedule either. We mm-hmm. supposedly came up with a few alternative dates. I, I suspect we probably came up with them knowing that they were never really viable in the first place, but at least it looked like we were trying to cooperate and play ball at that point. But 
the right decisions made. None of us are going to remember anything about the competition whatsoever. I'm, I'm pretty sure that had we won it within about half an hour of winning, it would have been the subject of much banter from other clubs for having won a tin pot cup. Anyway, um, the, the the risk of being in the competition far outweighed any potential reward from it. Yes, and to borrow the words of a wise man known as Gareth from a week or two ago, in 10 years' time or 20 years' time, we can look back if this point in history ever comes up and say UEFA robbed us of winning the Europa Conference League. So there we go. <laughs> we did end up with an award-winning coach. I mean, look, <clears throat> he won the award for his season with Inter Milan, uh, but let's claim it. Antonio Conte is one coach of the year at the Gazetta Sports Awards in 2021 after that superb season as Inter Milan boss. And, you know, we missed this news a few weeks ago, uh, shamefully. Conti is also on the shortlist for best men's coach in the best FIFA football awards of 2021, where he's named alongside Hansi Flick, Pep Guardiola, Thomas Tuchel, Diego Simeone, Lionel Sebastian Scaloni, and rather curiously, I have to say, Roberto Mancini, although maybe not so curious. I don't know. He won the Euros. Do you think he deserves to be there? He won the Euros. You've got the Copa America winners. I suppose that. You've got the Euros winners. um, The Champions League winner. Premier League winner and the Serie A winner and the uh, and La Liga winner and and the Bundesliga winner. So you've got the winners of all the all the leading European competitions and then the two international tournaments that happen this summer. So you know, and I don't want you to edit this out, okay? What I'm about <laughs> to say because I think it's very important. No, no, don't. I'm deadly serious. I just want to confess to to all of you that once in a while I drop a clanger, and as I read Roberto Mancini, I saw Roberto Martinez. And as I finished saying Mancini, I realised, ah, it's the it's the Roberto that wins things. So that's why I flubbed that. Yes. Uh, well, anyway, the winner will be decided by a vote by captains, coaches, journalists and the public and will be announced on the 17th of January 2022. So for those of us of vintage, you'll remember that the Carry On films often had sequels. You know, it's Carry On This, Carry On That, Carry On Up the Kyber, whatever, all sorts of things. You could say we're in Carry On COVID in the Camp Part 2. Uh, I wonder if this is going to become a running sequel, a running series of, 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 of episodes that we're going to have to go through uh, for 2022. Who knows? But our game against Leicester last Thursday was called off at midday uh, following a request from Leicester after their positive COVID test that morning. Uh, Brentford had called for this weekend's, this past weekend's fixtures to be postponed because of the increasing number of players and coaching staff testing positive around the Premier League. The Football League is being similarly hit, with a large number of games being postponed. Uh, And Premier League clubs met today. Uh, That is this day that we're recording and speaking to you uh, right now. And discussed postponing the December 28th to 30th round of fixtures, but they decided against such a move. So, chaps, were the Premier League clubs wrong? And are we at the point where we really should look at a circuit breaker, winter break, to try and get this situation under control? Uh, I, I don't think it's as binary as whether it's right or wrong. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many factors to throw in. Of course, there is self-interest that comes into it as well on a commercial level, on a you know on a, on a sporting level as well. 
I think it's just impossible to say. I mean, I, I, th- I think there's very much a need to have a separate conversation, and there has been for a number of years actually about whether the amount of games played over the Christmas period at all is too much. I, th- I think it is. I, I think by the time you get round to the New Year's game, to then the third round of the FA Cup ties, there's a discernible drop off in energy and intensity and quality levels anyway. So I, I think it would have been sensible um, for there not to be games in between Boxing Day and, and, and New Year's Day. Yes, we'll come on to yesterday's game, but it was such a great advert for football and for Premier and for the Premier League that I just wonder whether chairman and, and stakeholders would have looked at that game and think, well, you know, how can we deny the public this sort of um, you know, this sort of opportunity to watch high, such high level quality of, of football? I wonder whether, in the back of their mind, they're wondering whether there might be restrictions coming soon from the government. And they'd almost end up getting hit twice if they put something in place now because they do something voluntarily now and then there's measures later on um, that would impact that. I mean, I think the issue from a fan's point of view at the moment is that games are getting called off at short notice. You know, you said the Leicester game at midday, there would have been fans who would have, um, you know, our fans who would have you know, booked a rail ticket, booked the afternoon off work, you know, maybe started travelling up already when they found out about it. And, uh, you know, that's that's a lot of time and expense that people go to. You know, if you look at this weekend's fixtures, funny enough, I, I was I was looking at um, attendances and looking at uh, trying to do a comparison between us and other London fixtures. And the only other game played in London this weekend was Sutton United. Fulham played to, played tonight on Monday, but there was nothing. So, uh, in the Premier League, four out of ten fixtures went ahead. In the Championship, six out of eleven went ahead. In League One, six out of twelve went ahead. In League Two, four out of twelve went ahead. So, you know, we're not far off having a break anyway because so few fixtures are being fulfilled at the moment and you'd assume that it's going to be a similar picture over the Christmas period. I think what we desperately need is um, the decisions to be made earlier so that fans have got a chance to, well, save any expense and and not have wasted journeys. Yeah, I mean, I think also there is the factor, and I I believe this very strongly, that there is, um, uh, you know, somewhat of a psychological element to all of this. And I think there's, you know, while we can still soldier on, there's still a, a sort of, you know, hope that maybe it isn't what it appears to be and I'm I'm sure that that's I mean I don't think it's factoring into anything that's happening you know rule wise but I do think that you know football especially in 2020 had a massive massive uh, effect on Mm. just keeping people going even in those empty stadiums it was something Um, and Gareth I think you're, you're absolutely right I think maybe people did see that game and were just like wow you know this is psychologically an important thing to try and get keep on going yeah and I think the other thing you've got to bear in mind or you've got to consider is what would we use the circuit breaker for? If it was used to vaccinate and, and give boosters to, to players and staff, then you could see some sense in that. There's a use to it. If it's just so that, um, you know, you, I suppose there's a, there's a sense if, there's an, if, if it's seen as a risk of fans attending games, then I suppose there's a use in that. But if it's just a break so that players can get get fit and nothing else changes, then then as soon as they start getting together again it's going to start spreading so it doesn't really serve much purpose in the in the medium term so i mean let me just throw this in there it's an important thing and it does we're not going to quite bleed into uh the game at the lane between ourselves and liverpool but it does involve the managers i think we've all been in agreement that jürgen klopp has been a wonderful spokesperson when it comes to covid he's speaking very plainly about it very openly 
without any uh, embarrassment or shame and, and, and very con- uh, conclusively. And I think that he's operating things at Liverpool in a way that football should be operating. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like you if you can to contrast that to Antonio's uh, comments about, you know, yes, I believe in vaccination, of course, 100 percent. But ultimately, I do think it should remain a case of choice. What are your thoughts? I mean, do we think that this is all happening because of the vaccination rates in the Premier League? And would you be in favour of a mandate where, hey, vaccinate or you're not you're not going to play? You're not going to be part of this setup. It's an odd situation where the choice of having ketchup or not isn't a, a, a matter for an individual, but um, having a vaccine is. Wow, that's actually <laughs> uh, that's an excellent point. I mean, you could you could just say that, and it's very clear. Um, I mean, I think I say Dan Kilpatrick reported last week that um, Spurs are meant to be eighty-five percent of our players are meant to have had two do- two vaccines, two doses. So that equates to well, if, if that's the first team squad, what three or four players who who haven't something like that and that compares to the premier league as a whole which is 68 percent have had two doses so we're a little up on that if but then if you compare that so just on the premier league figure that's 68 percent um in the premier league compared to the uk as a whole it's 70 percent that have had two doses um if we compare that to syria 98 percent of the players have received two vaccinations compared to 73.7 percent in italy as a whole La Liga is 95% double jabbed compared to 80.2% uh, in the country as a whole. So Italy and Spain, or their top flight football, have done a far better job of getting their players vaccinated um, than we have. One thing I just wanted to touch on briefly before kind of moving on, there was a, a Guardian have released a story just before we started recording saying that one of the things the Premier League is considering is um, separate uh, proposing separate protocols for unvaccinated players. Um, they'd have to travel separately to games. They'd face additional checks to get into stadiums and they would have to eat away from vaccinated teammates. Absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Uh, with a view to trying to uh, avoid more co- fixtures being cancelled. Yeah, saying kind of one of the drawbacks of the current situation is that an unvaccinated player has to isolate for 10 days, regardless of a test result, after they've come into contact with someone with COVID. So unvaccinated players will be out even if they're testing negative after after her contact with someone who, who has COVID. Yeah, but let me put you on the spot again. And I'm going to go back to my question because it, this somewhat addresses it. I mean, you, this appears to be some sort of mitigating proposal to avoid mandating vaccines for, for players at clubs. And I'm going to ask you directly, if you were the, the manager, coach of Tottenham Hospital Football Club, would you turn around and say, oh, you have to be vaccinated or you can go and train over there and you're not part of my setup i'm not aware of any managers who have done that i mean i think klopp has done it through persuasion rather than mandating i suspect that players will change their minds when they're next looking for a move because they're going to struggle to find a club and the wages they'll command will be dramatically reduced because you're going to have to factor in potential absences when you when you're looking at you know negotiating that contract with a player so they're going to be worth less and they're going to get paid less. This feels a little bit like, I've got to interrupt, this feels a little bit like Michael Caine in St. Lawrence Olivier in, in, in Sleuth, where I'm trying to get Milo to tell me what he would do if he was the coach of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. And he's very deftly parrying it away with a, an unassa- you know, with an unquestionable fact. But, but I digress. I, they're, they're great points. I'm just interested in what you would do. Because it's tough, isn't it? It's really tough. 
I mean, I, I would like to see um, more more leadership from the club. I would like to see um, the club talking about why um, vaccination is important. And as a manager, I would like them to lead by example. I thought some of what Conte said was good, but I don't. It didn't go quite further enough for me. So yes, I, I'd like stronger leadership from the club on this. Uh, and I think a, you know, a similar statement we saw um, Stephen Gerrard and Jurgen Klopp make about, um, and I think Pep Guardiola said the same as well now, around how um, vaccine status would be a, a factor in players they look to sign in the future, um, I think would sure. be a good idea as well. Because, I mean, frankly, it's going to be, isn't it? Same as um, an injury record would be um, something you would consider. That's That's got to be a factor. Yeah, I, gotcha. I, I think it's also to... We should also consider the role of the medical staff in this as well. And, you know, often the players will be really reliant on the messaging they get from the medical staff. And if you remember the All or Nothing document, when they showed COVID first coming out, it was the it was the head physio, Jeff Scott, who was talking to the players mm. about what COVID might be as a, as, as a respiratory disease. So I, th- I think a lot of it comes down to how much the players trust the medical personnel and perhaps how how forthright they are in their opinion. Of course, we have absolutely no way of, of, of knowing um, how the players relate to the medical staff, um, whether there may mm. be some cultural issues. Again, the managers, the, the only thing like this I can think of might have been in the past where a manager might encourage a player to take a painkilling injection for him to get through a game, whereas the medical staff might be saying to the manager, if you do this, he might get through this game, but he's going to miss the next three. Um, and you might find that there's slightly different messaging coming from the medical team than there would be from the from the actual manager. So I don't think it's just on the manager. Um, I think they are a smaller cog in the world, perhaps, mm. than they would have been 20 years ago. I wonder whether um, the Joshua um, Kimmich... Um... Uh, case in in Germany might might be a factor. So the Bayern player, so he, he caught COVID in November and suffered um, breathing difficulties since, and it's, he hasn't re- he hasn't returned to training yet, and he's looking to be out into the in, into the new year at least. So he will have missed at least a couple of months of the season due to this, and and he was unvaccinated, and he's spoken out since about how he regrets that decision um, and the impact it's had. And I wonder whether cases like that might be. Um, have a bigger impact than you know just what people say. Well, I mean, let's just amplify that message one more time for anyone out there who thinks that this is some sort of odd little flu going around. When you're looking at a professional athlete of the caliber of Joshua Kimmich um, and of the, uh, I mean, an energetic player to say the least. I mean, I'm actually kind of floored to hear that he hasn't uh, played for two months because of breathing difficulties. So that just goes to show uh, this is a very real thing. And I certainly do hope uh, that players, especially our players, take that seriously. And I hope that they're all vaccinated. Um, But, you know, one final question, because I do know we have to move on. Yeah, there is going to be a massive issue with scheduling if this continues. There already is a massive issue with scheduling in world football. Um, You know, we've got this ridiculous uh, head-scratchingly why is this happening League of Nations tournament coming up in June which basically puts the semi-kibosh on extending the season what's the point because you're going to end up with this you know parade of numptydom going on uh you've got the Africa Cup of Nations you've got the World Club Cups taking place in January and February you know does what do we do do the do the players and the players unions have to start pushing back against FIFA, UEFA, um, and and say, look, enough. With COVID on the burner here as well, we are really going to break the very people who make our game tick. We're going to break them. So back off. One of these has to go. 
Are we at that point? We are at that point. We've been at that point for a while, and FIFA are pushing more and more. And I've had sports news on earlier, and I can see that Arsene Wenger is, is at the top table with Infantino talking about um, you know, why it's important that we have biannual World Cups as well. It's it, you know it's just too much. We've reached saturation point. I, I've got to ask you because I've missed this. So I'm, obviously, I've had my head in the sand for a few days doing some other stuff. But Arsene Wenger is is speaking in a positive light. About a World Cup every it's two Ars- years. Arsene Wenger is FIFA's World Club. Um, he, he's got a title with FIFA, and he's advocating this. Um, I mean, I, I was led to believe that he was a bit of a patsy in it a while ago, but he was very much at the top table. Whether Infantino's got a gun under the table pointed at him to say these things, I don't know. Well, I better be careful what I say. But I mean, let 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 me just say that you know, brown paper yeah. bags that used to be exchanged in the M1 comes to mind, yeah. containing no. large sandwiches. You know, good lord. It's entirely about money because FIFA, the only um, tournament that FIFA's got that earns them any money is the is the World Cup. Mm. And um, they're jealous about the money that UEFA gets from the Champions League yeah. and so are, some of the, so, so are the other confederations. So uh, biannual, biannual uh, World Cups with the money shared around some of the um, less wealthy uh, confeder- confederations um, is the plan for this. That's why they're, that's why they're proposing it. Wenger said that having a biannual World Cup would generate an additional $3.3 billion into the football world. On a, on a, on a four year cycle, um, it's it's too much. I get, I I'm often mindful though that we poo poo international football. If you are a Scotland fan and you qualified for your first tournament in 25 years last year, um, you will lap up the opportunities to play in more international tournaments. And there will be. Have Canada have qualified for the World Cup? Next year, mm. um, or yeah, for the for the first time since nineteen eighty six. Now it might just be they've suddenly got a cycle of players that are very good. That might be a once in a generation opportunity for them. So if you're a Canadian fan, we may have, we'll have some Canadian fans listening to this. Um, the fact that you might get to see your team play in two competitions because that's how long your cycle will exist is hugely attractive. There'll be another number of countries. I'm going to say minority football countries around the world who would also really welcome that opportunity. I think where um, um, you know, in England, where the Premier League is so big and the Champions League is so big, and we almost take it for granted that our team's going to get into international competitions every year, we maybe don't view football in the same way that um, other people around the world might do. And I think we should be aware of that. Um, however, my resounding view is there's far too much football on there, and you know, less needs to be more. Steph, you're going to be overjoyed when you hear that South American countries will be joining the Nations League from the following year. The games will still be played in Europe, but um, they're, they're, they're being invited to join. Ridiculous. Yeah, it's absurd. I mean, absolutely absurd. And it's so obvious that FIFA going head-to-head, oh, UEFA going head-to-head with FIFA. I mean, it's so obvious and trying to create this sub-World Cup by doing that. Just madness. I, what we need is for the leading clubs to break away from UEFA and form their own competitions. I mean, that's the obvious way out of this. <laughs> You know, maybe if they, maybe if players doing that get banned from all your old international tournaments, then you know it's all fine and dandy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, quite, quite. I mean, look, on a serious note, we have to move on. This is a massive conversation. I think we're going to be having it plenty of times in 2022 because I think it's going to be a factor in in players' bodies breaking down with uh, all this uh, overload of travel and, and and playing. It's too much. But I'd love to invite. You know, hey, why don't you tell us? I mean, would you like to see? the end of some of these international tournaments, you know, uh, hit the old Twitter account and let us know. We'd really like to know, are we playing too much football? Should the Nations League be ended? Let us know. 
tweet us, if you will. Let's move on, chaps, to a wonderful game of football at the weekend. We played Liverpool. We haven't beaten them in some time. We haven't given them a game in some time, it must be said, quite sadly, uh, including 2019. But my word, what a return to standards, I think, for Tottenham Hotspur Football Club on Sunday. 2-2 draw. We ended up incredibly annoyed that we didn't win the game. Created probably more clear-cut chances against Liverpool than we have anyone else this season. Missed more sitters against Liverpool than we have against anyone else this season. And I think to take a huge silver lining for missing those chances and only getting a draw, to have these expectations re-established at our football club is a massive, massive achievement in such a short amount of time. You know, let's talk about what Antonio did by bringing in Harry Winks, who was man of the match for me, um, Tangi and Dombele, and Delhi. Gareth, why don't you kick us off? Talk to us about those changes and the effect that they had on on the game. I suspect they were probably changes made out of necessity because of, of injuries and illness to Hoiberg and to, and to Skip and to Lucas in particular. But yeah, look, definitely Winks. I agree with I agree with you. Winks was our player of player of the match. Um, in preparation for the game yesterday, I'd looked back at the team that had played against Liverpool when we beat them four one in October. Um, 2017. In fact, Winks had played in a very, very similar role that day behind Delhi and, and Ericsson with a back three behind him and with wing back. So whether it's just something about that shape and uh, and the people around him um, that gets the best out of him. But yeah, I thought he was magnificent yesterday. Um, I mean, on, on the whole, what we saw was a team playing with intensity and a, a team that was able to rub shoulders with one of the genuinely the best teams in, in Europe, if not the world at the moment. So it was it was really, really pleasing. Where Delhi's performance came from, it came out of absolutely nowhere. I think we've, you know, you've been one of his, his one of my staunch fans, but I think we'd all given up on him. Well, I, let me go on record as saying even I had started to give up on him, and it made me very, very sad. That's it. But he had the devil about him again yesterday, didn't he? Oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah, that's didn't the, he just? Yeah, absolutely. There, there, there's, there's something just a bit niggly at him, just underneath the surface, um, and it seemed to bring out the best in him. And we we need to see over a larger sample size whether this is this is going to be a regular thing, and whether we're going to see Delhi's return to 2016 Delhi. But that's what we desperately wanted to see, and you know, and we saw it. Delhi, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it was a very similar role to he played uh, under Nuno at the beginning of the season, where. He starts off in a in a midfield three, you know, centrally in a midfield three, but then has license to get forward and and um, become an extra attacker when we when we get forwards. It was miles different to what we saw under under Nuno, where at times he was little more than a willing runner and effective at that, and you know, but um, not really showing the full range of his skills. Yeah, it was interesting. I'd like to see more of it. I think one thing to note there is, and this is you know, when Harry Winks is he's looking up and passing forwards. He's a really progressive player and he opens the game up so quickly. And I think that when you open the game up that quickly with that forward pass and forward progression, it allows players like Delhi to find the spaces and the pockets to run into and impact the game in the way that they love to do. And, uh, you know, we saw that with that beautifully timed curving run that he made uh, to square for Harry, uh, albeit the ball was a slightly off, but Harry should have scored. Um, so, again, I think that, you know, Winks was such an important part of everything yesterday. But that's the difference where you're coaching 
forwards coaching forward movements and um yeah the 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 automations that we've talked about a fair bit you know both from from dyer and winks were looking to find similar balls um you know we we had a number of ones from dyer where he was picking out sessignon on the on the left and and coming in we had he created some good chances there on another day or you know with a bit more practice we'll we'll get those and winks was constantly looking to release um sun quickly and we were aided slightly by liverpool playing a high line but that ball in behind and sun running onto it we we had endless joy with that yeah that's that's good coaching that's saying when you're in this position i want you to do this and this player will do that run and we haven't had that for a while we've had um you know a couple of managers on the trot that um leave the forwards to improvise attacks and i think that's part of the reason why we've seen winks and and others as well playing safe balls again liverpool the way liverpool played helped us I think Conte made the conscious decision that we weren't going to try and pin back Alexander Arnold and Robertson. We were going to let them play higher up the pitch because we knew when we did, when won the ball back, then um, we would then have that space to try and exploit, which we did. So it's a bit of a gamble to some extent. Um, and look, I mean, the, the pair of them as fullbacks combined for for their second goal. They were both involved in that move inside the first sixty seconds. So. I, I guess you, you you know you win some and lose some, but certainly it benefited us yesterday. It gave Delhi more spaces to run into from deeper positions, which won't necessarily exist in the next couple of games that we play. Uh, but I, th- I thought the tactics were right for the for the game that we played yesterday. Now, so mm. what we don't know is whether the tactics were set once we knew the starting eleven, or whether it was the other way round or not. And I guess we won't know that. I mean, I think Liverpool normally play you know pretty similar ways, so it's not too much of a surprise about how they line up. And for all the joy that Robertson and Trent, uh, Alexander Arnold had, and they they were excellent. Uh, Mane and Salah were very very quiet. So um, you know the positioning of our wide centre backs and uh, our wing backs dropping in to support them. They did an excellent job against them. I thought Mane was actually quite dangerous yesterday at times. He was getting into the box, but we snuffed it fairly well. But as for uh, yeah, Salah was uh, largely in the pocket, wasn't he? We've covered Harry Winks. Let's talk about uh, Ndombele. I thought we saw the best and the worst of Ndombele in the game yesterday. So the best was the pass. It was a very instinctive pass. It had exactly the right weight on it. Um, and it all, all Harry Kane had to do was swing his right foot at it. And it was a goal. It was it was a wonderful pass. And he, he got into a couple of positions in Dombele where he could affect play. However, what I also saw being in the stadium was the amount of times when he was just ambling behind Liverpool players when they were running forwards. Um, I didn't think he particularly put in a shift when we didn't have the ball and he relied on us winning it back and you know and giving it to him i thought it was telling that when delhi got brought off conte went over and gave him a big pat, pat on the back when Ndombele came off which was the first substitution conte didn't seem to make any contact um with him whatsoever so i think we saw the maverick midfielder that i know that we know that we've got and if you if 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 you're going to get him in the team, you are going to get moments of brilliance from him, but you are going to be missing in other areas as well. I thought Antonio was okay. He was the least impressive of the midfield three, but his very direct, straight passing was causing Liverpool problems and worked well. And the pass for the goal, particularly, was excellent. I think if we persevere with this formation, and I would, then I think. Winks is the one who keeps his slot. Winks stays at the base of midfield, and Hoybier and Skip play in front of him either side in the um, uh, in the positions that Delian and Nabele were playing in. I think all of the players 
that came into the side. Well, actually, no, all of the players that started yesterday, I think, came out of the game with their reputations and, and their prospects enhanced. It's good that we've got three midfielders who came in there who um, most of us probably didn't have particularly high hopes for when the team was announced, although I thought Winks was very good when he came on a couple of weeks ago. I think that's what he'll do. If, if we're going to stick with um, 3-5-2, then I think Winks is the one who keeps his place because it made a real difference having a ball player at the base of midfield. When Conte came in, I, I held high hopes that he could resurrect Harry Winks' career, actually. And I, I mean, I know we talked about that uh, you know, to some mm. extent and I'm very, very happy to see it happen. What I'm interested to see now is whether he decides to try uh, Lo Celso instead of Ndombele uh, when he goes for that shape just to see what he can get from Lo Celso. You do feel that one of those two players becomes a tradable asset to him uh, in order to, you know, phase one of his upgrading projects will be to, to upgrade on one of those players. And I wonder if we're going to see Lo Celso given an opportunity in the same role. I don't know. Yeah, and possibly. I mean, you know, Morecambe in the FA Cup looks like our next chance to start um, trying some of these players out, doesn't it? It does, but we've got to see if Lo Celso can do it against sides other than Morecambe, I think. I mean, we've got to, I mean, not that you want to be experimenting on the flying games that are so important, but he does need to find out. But yes, I mean... Maybe there's a chance from the bench. I don't see I don't see Celso starting a game unless it's forced on him in the league. Interesting. Okay. Um, you know, what did you think of uh, his use of subs yesterday? So the, the subs were possibly premeditated, may well have been linked to players' fitness and physical conditioning and ability to play the 90 minutes. I thought we, we kept the shape well. After Robertson was sent off, there was, I th- was at the point when Lucas Moura came on and it gave us a slightly different mm-hmm. option. And you know, in, in theory, it's more of an attacking um, option. I think Liverpool shut up shop, essentially, when Robertson was sent off. So the dynamic of the game changed a little bit at that point. I thought it was actually very interesting. It was a really good showcase for why Lucas works in very specific situations. But the moment it's sussed or dealt with on the pitch, it actually is an ineffective change because he really didn't have any effect on the game at all. Whereas on paper, we would have all said this was the right substitution to make given the direction the game was heading and you know, you'd think there's potential space. But you've got to hand it to Klopp. He's no dummy. He knows exactly what he needs to do at that, at that point and he did it. Um, Klopp reacted to it immediately. So Lucas came on on 81 minutes. Um, Timikas came on on 82 so uh, Mane came off, uh, he came on and he responded to it immediately. I thought um, the use of subs was good. I mean, Skip for Ndombele made sense and Ndombele was clearly tiring in the second half. I think he's a very mercurial player and I think that actually we're just going to have to accept that he is. And for the brilliant passes he produces, he yep. might be the one player who gets an accommodation in yeah, an Antonio yeah, Conte yeah. team, if he can produce moments like that, you know? I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, something Conte did with um, Pogba at Juventus, isn't it? So it's not, um, I don't think they're dissimilar players. I mean, it's almost having control of a wild card. It's like, I know that this guy is mercurial, so I'll control the situation when I take him off, when I use him and let him do what he does while he's on there. And I think within a system, you can accommodate probably one of those you know we've talked about Lucas before with some of his wayward passing but also um you know sometimes that is bringing bringing results so you know he's he's potentially a high-risk player maybe longer term Delhi and 
and Dembele in the same side isn't ideal because both of them can be a little wayward. Yeah, you bring up a very good point, though, because we talk about uh, Antonio's um, very, very, uh, shall we say, strict or regimented patterns and ways and so on. But, you know, in this discussion, we're also exploring the fact that within that structure and very fierce structure, he does make allowances for talent to express itself, albeit you may not get to play the full 90 minutes, but you do get the chance to express yourself within that structure. So it is another way of looking at both the way he manages and what he did with the side uh, yesterday in this, in this three, five, two. And let me bring us to that um, specifically with the top two. I mean, we're talking about Sun and Kane. You probably had their most connective game for, for over a year. I think it's fair to say, albeit it was rusty, but crikey, they got a lot of chances between them and they were actually finding each other, looking for each other. I mean, it was, you know, again, glass half full. It was incredibly encouraging to see. Is this the system that's going to bring the best out of both of these players? I think there was good supply to them, wasn't there? There was good supply from Ndombele. There was good supply from from Winks. There was quick balls that came from the back, from, from Sanchez and from Dyer as well. And I think that's the that's the way to unlock their abilities. It's to it's to get the ball to them quickly where they can be exposed they can they can be exposed to counterattacks and two V twos, three V threes at the back. It's taken a while to click for some reason. So you're, you're, you're right. They were finding the first pass to each other yesterday, um, but then maybe the finish wasn't quite right. Um, whereas in the past or so far this season, they've not actually found each other particularly well. And I think that's because the ball's not been getting to them at the right times in the right positions. Again, it's slightly circumstance. I think Liverpool putting their fullbacks up so high meant that there was more room for us to pass the ball into. I don't think that'll be the case if we play against West Ham Wednesday night because I think West Ham will, will will play far deeper than that I think other teams will do as well uh, so I think it's maybe it's one of those circumstances where we're playing against a team who's more concerned with what they do going forward with than trying to stop us I think Sun particularly it suits a lot more I think he struggled a bit playing uh, deeper and narrower in the um, uh, 3-4-2-1 so I think uh, it definitely suits Sun and Sun and Kane are a proven partnership and one of the, if not the best in the league as a pair. If we're going to get anything out of this season, we need them firing. So I think you've got to look at the formation that gets the best out of those. That'd be a little unkind on Lucas, who, if we're being honest, has been one of the better performers this season and and, and under Conte. But I think sacrificing him for a midfielder, central midfielder who's better on the ball and can play passes, can play early balls through and, and uh, be a bit more direct, I think will improve us as a side and make us harder to play against and I think be a smart move. It'll be interesting to see what he does when players who've had COVID are back and, and fit. agree with that. One more player I think we should look at, um, albeit quite briefly, Ryan Sessegnon. Do we finally have real competition in the squad for that position with Ryan Sessegnon coming through? He was... Yeah. yeah, I thought I thought it was really good. You know, we talked earlier on about how quiet Salah was, and you know he's up against, or him and Davis are up against Salah and um, Trent Alexander-Arnold, which is as challenging as you're going to find in this league. And uh, they cope with them very well. Although that you know the uh, Liverpool fullbacks were by, by far and away the best players on uh, wearing red yesterday. Um, they cope with them very well, and or Cessna cope with them very well, and he was very good. Uh, offensively as well. Yeah, very early on when Dyer released Cessna on Cessna got through and 
ball was just cleared before he could get square the ball to uh, to Kane, and he had a, a couple of similar runs. I thought it was very encouraging, and I think um, you know potentially he could be more than just cover for Reggion. I think I think uh, if he continues to impress and continues to improve, you know, bearing in mind he hasn't had many starts for us, but you know if, if he carries continues to improve, then we could actually have the two of them fighting, you know, competing for a place rather than just him being uh, an able deputy. Yeah, I, th- I think at the moment Reggie's still quite a long way ahead of Sessegnon. I, th- I think if you're picking your strongest team for the next game, you're going to put you're going to put Reggie on there, who looks a bit more accomplished in there. But certainly, what we've seen over the last three or four weeks has been really encouraging from from Sessegnon. But I still think there's a distance to go um, until he's he's really really knocking on the door of Reggie. But look, it's, it's certainly going in the right direction. It would be churlish not to uh, briefly touch on the things that apparently uh dominated the post-match media coverage which was um that you know yeah it was 2-2 draw but if Harry Kane had been sent off you know as he should have been then it would have been a walk for Liverpool and you know so on and so forth you know let's let's discuss these key decisions Harry not getting a red card Robertson getting one then the Liverpool not getting a penalty for Royals uh push on Jota and I'm going to throw in you know, there was a little shove that I thought was quite similar to Royals on Jota on Delhi. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's four incidents there to pick apart. And, and Matip landing on Winks's back earlier in the in the first half um, inside their oh, area. Yes. My understanding on the Kane one, I saw a clip from Sky earlier on uh, where they were going through the ref decisions and evidently the reason it wasn't given is because Robertson was jumping at the time Kane came through. But it looked to me that yeah, Kane was going in with his studs up at pace and wasn't in control of the challenge. So I, I thought it was a red card. Um, and I think red, I thought Robertson's was a red card as well. He he kicked right the way through um, uh, through Ryle's standing leg. He had no hope of getting the ball because the ball was shielded. It looked to me that you know, just before that, Ryle had done a nice little bit of trickery and it looked like frustration and he just kicked through him in frustration. And when he got the yellow, he was walking away smiling and laughing. So I, I, I read that to think he, he thought he'd got away with one at that point. So it felt like the right decision. I have some sympathy you know, for the Kane red card because I think it probably was a red and you know two two penalty you know two marginal penalty claims to one any of those could have been given on another day but um i don't think they've got too much to complain about with that if you look at them chronologically kane's challenge was was quite early on in the game it was we were one nil up at the time it's maybe about 20 minutes gone it was a red card i don't think anyone with the most lily white tinted glasses can look at that and say that um say that it was anything other than a red card it, it should have been and you can understand liverpool's frustration i thought their penalty that the, i saw it the first the fir- when i saw it the first time i wasn't sure the second time i wasn't sure the more i've looked at it well i think yeah that was that was a penalty at a crucial point they should have been given the opportunity to be to be 2-1 ahead i thought it was a stronger penalty claim than either of either of our two to be fair no doubt about robertson's red card at the end i think what we're seeing with kane though i, th- I think we're finally seeing the benefit of having the england captain in our team so there are lots of frustrations, such as the fact that he does get called up for every England senior game. Um, you know he's going to play in all of them as well. It's a pain in the backside when he, you know, when he does. But we've been on the receiving end of it. How many times have we seen Alan Shearer, David Beckham, Stephen Gerrard, um, John Terry, and Wayne Rooney come to Spurs and just effectively referee the game as they as they want it? And look, that's the that's the that's, that's what you got to weigh up. So next time when Kane gets called up to play in a way game in Lithuania and he plays 80 minutes three days before he has a big game for us 
that's just the balance that you've got to apply to it that there are certain things that go for you when you're, when you're the England captain and he definitely got away with one and we definitely got away with one and I'm sure if we'd been down to 10 men as we should have done we'd have ended up getting no points out of that game yesterday oh, I think that's a definitive uh, pair of statements on the situation I have nothing to add I agree with everything and uh, again for those listening let it not be said that we don't try and be fair and you, you have to be fair so as when you do have a bloody good moan about something that didn't go your way such as Mo Salah's uh, egregious and outrageous handball that uh, you know everyone could see clearly in the stadium you could be taken credibly <clears throat> I would say that Klopp was an ungracious arsehole after the game though the clip of him um, having a go at the ref um, on the pitch was not dissimilar to what Poch got a ban for a few years back. I thought his bow after getting the yellow card, he was lucky he didn't get a second yellow card for, for that. And saying that we sat back and just kicked it long, I thought was pretty classless as well. So um, normally I've got uh, quite a lot of good things to say about him, but I thought he was a bit of an arsehole after the game. Sour grapes. I mean, I, I look, I don't think anyone on this pod has a problem with Jürgen Klopp. I mean, I think we're actually probably some of his biggest fans outside uh, outside Merseyside. Well, the red half. Um, I think that's all part of his theatre and part of his passion and part of who he is. I've never seen him. I haven't seen him accept a draw or defeat with grace uh, for the last three or four years. And quite frankly, that's because Liverpool don't have many of them. And I'll tell you what, Liverpool also don't have many games where they could have got absolutely stuffed by four or five goals. And he will know that by complaining that way, he's taken the attention away a little bit from the fact that we missed some sitters and should have taken them to the cleaners. So I accept it as part of the theatre. So closing thoughts, one positive, one negative in uh, the game is about glory. 30 seconds. Gareth. Positive was that we looked like we could compete against one of the best opponents and we genuinely rubbed shoulders with them. It wasn't just rope-a-dope tactics. Uh, Negative is purely that we didn't take the chances that would have recorded a real statement victory, which which really could have um, given the Conte era um, a rocket launch. My positive... I'll go for the performance Harry Winks. You know, we touched on it earlier on about how man of the match, he was excellent. And it's it's really good when you find a solution to a problem within the squad, uh, at least for this season. You know, if, if we're looking at, you know, January is going to be a tough window. It's difficult to do business then. Finding solutions with us, within the squad is really important right now. We can, we can find long-term solutions in the summer, but we need to find a way to get to the end of the season and finish in the top four. And I think Winks has given us uh, a, a, you know, a chart, an option there. Uh, negative, yeah, it's hard to disagree with Gareth. Really, there was we just weren't clinical enough in front of goal. And uh, if we were, then yeah, that could have been five or six easily. I'll make two positives. I'll make a positive of your negative first of all, which is. I don't want us to start peeking in the public eye too early. So the fact we're creating these chances, <laughs> missing them, it's fine by me. Let's carry on bubbling under the radar a little bit. Let's just make sure that when it comes to putting teams to the sword in and around us, that we definitely do it. So I wasn't so upset about that, although I appreciate it would have been nice to us, you know, recorded the five or six, six, two win that we probably should have got or be told with the chances. Um, and the biggest positive at all is, and I'm going back in, uh, you know, back to the front, if you will. We have re-established a standard of football expectation and performance for Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. And we can be disappointed that we didn't win this game. And in that disappointment is the sort of expectation that I expect us to have for the rest of the season. We've come back to the standard that I believe we lost two years ago. So a very, very positive afternoon overall for me. And what an entertaining game. Uh, I'm sure the neutral will not disagree. So. 
West Ham. If it happens, no reason to believe it won't right now. Who should we play? Should we stick with this 3-5-2? Do we go 3-4-2-1 if Moore and Skip are fit? Are we confident? That's three questions in one. And Gareth, I'm going to charge you with answering them as quickly as possible. I think the game takes on extra significance now. Now that we know our fate in the Europa Conference League is, is, is done and dusted, doing well in the domestic cups becomes more and more important for us this year. Plus the fact it's a London derby against a team who have got the better of us in the last three games. So I think it's really important that we go out there and we get through the game. We don't, again... Difficult because we don't, we just don't know which players are fit and and how many of them are capable of playing. What potentially you you'll know this, Milo. Would it go to extra time or does it go straight to penalties at this stage of the competition? Either way, it's going to be a high, it's going to be a high intensity game. I was saying, I'm ashamed to say, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think it probably goes straight to penalties, but I don't know why I think that. Um, I think that we need we need Larice, we need our spine, so we need Larice, we need Dyer at the back, we probably need skip to come back into midfield probably alongside winks and i think we need kane and son i think reggie will probably play on the left having not played the other day i think you might find that sess and reggie will rotate over the over the coming weeks maybe arista star emerson royale again on the right hand side if he's one of the players that's been affected by covid so we may see tanganga or, or, or doherty come in as the right wing back that doesn't leave too many gaps to to fill really Ambient thoughts around the holiday season. Every time I hear Emerson Royale's name, I just hear the line from Pulp Fiction, a Royale with cheese. I just wanted to share that with you. I'm sorry, Milo, carry on. Bring us back to reality. So I would stick with 352. I would not be looking to make a huge number of changes from the side that started against Liverpool. If Skips fits, then he comes back into the team, probably at the expense of Ndombele and... Yeah, uh, if uh, Reggie's coming back in for for Cess, then that's that's fine. But I'd be happy with Cess starting as well. But I think, I mean, obviously top four's a priority out of the Cups. This one should be our priority at the moment because it's the one we're furthest in. We're closest to a final. So, you know, how serious you take them um, increases the further you get into them. So I'd be looking to start start strong. We haven't played a lot of football over the last few weeks. And really the only consideration is is how fit players are after recovering from COVID for me. Stat update. All matches that end as a draw in the first five rounds will go straight to penalties without the use of extra time. So there's our definitive answer for that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see him stick with 3-5-2, to be honest. I think it would be great to see him persevere with the system. I'd like to see Lacelso come in instead of Ndombele just to see what we can get, what happens. I'd like him to have, like him to see if he could do it against a side like West Ham who are um, competent. I'll say no more than that. I think, actually, if you wanted to give Eric Dyer a rest, I might be tempted to try Joe Roden just to, just to, just uh, you know, to just, just for the heck of it. I probably put a little less importance on the fact we are two steps from Wembley, so on and so forth than, than everyone else. But that's because I'm I'm unashamedly top four dominated and, and, and feel that, you know, it's so vital that we, you know, get that fourth spot or even third that if we need to experiment and see who's up for it in order to rest players, I would do it. But I yeah, it is against them. Um I do want to win. And I think we will. I will say I think we will win. But the forwards, I would probably be resting one of the forwards for sure. I'd be resting one of them. Yeah, I just think that we, you know, we haven't played much football over the last few weeks, and it's Wednesday to Sunday, so it's not, it's not, it's not too much 
for them, I don't think. Bring in Lo Celso and you want him to do what he's doing for Argentina, then you probably bring him in for Delhi because he plays on the on the, on the left of a midfield three for uh, for Argentina. If, yeah, if you want to replicate that, then that's probably the place you bring him in. But you see, I'd be very tempted, albeit it leaves you with a lack of pace, maybe. Uh, I'd be very tempted to give Sonny a, a rest for the first half of the game and try and play Delhi uh, up top with Harry and see what happens there see if they can find some some magic and gel together yeah i think it's an option for delhi potentially but i th- I, I think um if he's had a promising performance i think moving him around probably isn't the best idea i'd try and get him settled into a position where he's str- you know after he struggled for the last few years and try and build on what was a good performance on against liverpool are we confident it's not a bad time to be playing them i mean they've um they've had a are you confident I'm going to pin you again. We're unbeaten domestically under Conte so far, aren't we? Uh, West Ham have had the wobbles these last few weeks. So, um, yeah, I I think, yeah, we're at home. I think this might be some revenge. Yeah, I think to use the classic football cliche, this is a derby where form goes out the window. I mean, often I think that's nonsense. I think usually the better, as Liverpool prove when they play Everson every every game, they usually beat them because they're the better team. But I think in Spurs-West Ham games, form genuinely does go out the window. I think what might be crucial is that West Ham didn't play this weekend, not because of any COVID or injury or in, in their camp, but because Norwich had. So it does mean that Nor- West Ham have had a free week going into this one, whereas, as we saw, we played a very high intensity game against Liverpool at the weekend. So that may well be a factor as the game goes on. But I think West Ham have still got quite a few injuries. I think their back four, which has set them, they've, they've set up so well with this year, is largely unavailable through Creswell, Johnson, and mm. Dog Bonner. I think have all been out. So in that sense, it's a good time to play them. Antonio hasn't been scoring many goals recently, albeit he he usually does well against us. I think I think it's what I think it's going to be one of those games that will be on a knife edge. I think it'll be a it'll be a crucial decision. It'll be a it'll be a bizarre spin of the ball one way or the other will determine which team goes through or not. I think we'll grid it out absolutely, and I'm going to back Harry to score yet again. So that's my colours to the mast. I think Harry will Harry will win us the game for sure. I think his shooting boots are getting sharper. His, uh, his eyes are getting sharper. So I think we'll win. But then we go from that game in the cup against West Ham to Crystal Palace in the league. The weekend, uh, you know, the same two questions. Who should we play? Are we confident? I mean, I think probably the first half of that uh, double question is dictated by what happens in the West Ham game in mm-hmm. terms of injuries and so on and so forth. And as we've just seen in the in the week that was, uh, you know, who knows what's coming? Who knows what test is going to be where and who and how? But in the ideal world, uh, would you be flipping systems back to a three-four-three to play Crystal Palace? Be maybe a little, little more conservative, a little more, you know, sitting in and so on. What would you do? It's a tough game. Palace, Palace, and no mugs. I, I don't think it's a case of one being more conservative than the other. I think um, yeah, three-five-two three, can be just as progressive as. Um, yeah, three four three. I I think three five two suits us better. I think it suits our forwards better. I think it suits our midfielders better. So I would rather stick with it um, and use um, use Lucas as an impact sub. We owe Palace one for after what happened uh, there. I I might be tempted to bring Jaffa on in the eighty ninth minute so we can go and kick someone. Other than that, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's 
I, I wouldn't be looking to make too many changes at the moment unless we've got injuries or you know, serious fatigue and yeah, difficult to say until we've got the West Ham game out of the way. Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably right. I think you, you take the game on its merits and you look at the condition of the players and how well they're likely to, to, to manage the game load, which will also include games against Southampton and Watford not long after. I mean, looking at Palace's form, since they beat us 3-0 back in September, they've only won three games since then. One of, albeit one of them was at Manchester City, which you'd have to say was an incredible result. But they lost at Leeds only th- four games ago, and Leeds have been in absolute free fall. Um, they drew with Southampton when they played last midweek. As we know, Zaha is their is their threat, and I think if we keep him quiet, we have done well against Palace in, in home games recently. And I'd expect us on balance to be able to get that one over the line. With, with with whichever eleven we put out, I think the fact that we're at home is is the deciding factor. We've got a good home record against Crystal Palace. Um, I think Sellers Park is where we slip up um, and get and and get taken, you know, by the fans. And I think Sellers Park's a very noisy ground. So, given that we're at home, I, I expect to see it through. I think it'll be a, a, a somewhat static, perfunctory performance, which would be fine by me. Let's just get through it, get the three points, move on, and I think we will. So there we are. We're going to win everything. We're going to win the. <laughs> we're going to win the Carabao Cup. We're obviously going to win the title, as you can tell. We're all on a big high because of Antonio's incredibly great work, and we will be back next week. The review of the season so far and how we got to this title-winning, cup-sweeping side that we see before us, and we'll also be looking forward to the transfer window, chaps. Thanks very much indeed. If you are one of the many new listeners that we've picked up over the last few weeks and months and you find yourself short of listening material over Christmas, and let's face it, with all the family arguments going on, there's never been a better time of the year to get your earpods in and toddle off to the loo for an hour and a half and uh, hide away. Uh, I can hardly recommend that you have a dig around our archives. I mean, look, where else can you find Eric Dyer killing jokes, singing rams and vegan cheese in one glorious pod? Well, that's the sort of fare that we serve up. So go dig in. There's some good stuff in there. So have a dig, have a laugh, give yourself an excuse to avoid the family holiday meltdowns. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. So give us a follow and say hello. And if you're stuck for something to give your favorite Spurs podcast this Christmas, we'd really like a five-star review and some kind words to accompany them on iTunes. As always, thanks for joining us. We hope that in all seriousness, you have a fantastic holiday season with no bickering whatsoever. Plenty of good tucker and we'll see you next week. Goodbye.